still be well and truly in your working life or you might have left it behind but I wonder what kind of experience it's been or is like for you. You might be one of the so-called lucky ones. You get to do something you love, it gives you purpose and passion, you get treated with respect, you get paid decently. That's kind of the ideal and the story we're all sold. But the reality is for a lot of people, and this might be you, work is a means to an end. It can be dull, repetitive, low-paid, even soul-destroying, or maybe it's somewhere in the middle. My guest tonight in The Writers, Christine Phillips, started working at the age of 15 in 1975. She spent years working in jobs that ticked that list I gave you. She's been unemployed, a student, a volunteer, and spent her working life struggling to stay afloat financially. Now, Christine's written her story in a book called Girl Friday, subtitled An Extraordinary Ordinary working life. She's my guest in The Writers Tonight. Hi, Christine. Welcome. Oh, hi, Suzanne. Thank you. So what made you want to tell the story of your working life? Well, I've got to be honest, it started as a bit of a revenge tale when (laughs) I couldn't get my foot back into the workforce in my early 50s after I left my last office job. Because I thought, what am I going to do with my time? And I have still had a fair bit of stuff bubbling under the surface. And I just downloaded it onto a, a page and post-it notes and ideas. And I just thought, well, this, this, it started as my memoir. And um, I kept writing and writing. And then it started, I started to think about my story of a working life in a social and political context through the eras and how that impacted packs on women's working lives and so you know I just it felt liberating to tell you the truth to be able to just tell like a a tell-all tale but you know an unknown working woman's office adventures and then I looked at you know different policies and government legislation that actually really did impact on women's working lives over the years. So let me start. I want you to tell us about you, your um, childhood. You grew up, you very clearly say, working class, Melbourne suburb. Tell us about your mother, your sisters, and Mm. the kind of expectations your family had about starting work young. It was normal because, uh, especially after we left our father, my mum was on her own work in a factory job uh, and there were six there's six females and one male in my family, so it truly was a matriarchy growing up. But uh that's what happened is one daughter would leave home, she'd already been to work, another would come out of school to bring, you know, board in, bring some money in to help pay for the running of the household. So that that was not unusual. And of course back in nineteen seventy five there was plenty of junior entry level positions. So my mum worked at the time at University Up the Road's uh, cafeteria, serving all the kooky professors from great big teapots and she'd make like whistles at the end of the week for put everything like cakes and sausage rolls and they'd mince it all up and they'd fry it up and sell that for the poor students. (laughs) Anywho, I think it might have improved now. But she said, why don't you go up the university and get a job? Love and I said, well, all right, and I put my hat in the ring after my Girl Friday job, which, frankly, at fifteen, I lied about my age to get the job. It was with the Jaguar Car Company. 
I thought I only had to go to work on Fridays. <laughs> it's the only reason I took it. Anyway, I get out of that job after a couple of years. I've got one job under my belt to, you know, go into the next job. So I ended up in classical studies department, which I actually thought was classical music, but no, ancient Greek and Latin and... I took care of the you know, very basic stuff, but I learned how to type on this special, special golf ball electric typewriter, which was had all ancient Greek and Latin symbols. I didn't know what I was typing, but yeah, I'd do the exam papers and I'd type letters and memos and I'd look after the library and the students and the help with the professors. And and, and Christine, when you were sort of young and starting out, you know, when you're 15 and you go for your Girl Friday job at at Jaguar and then when you started Mm. this job, what what a kind of, did you have a long-term idea about what your whole working life might look like? Nah, not really. I I think I just won more job. As long as I held a job, that's all that really mattered to me. But I did just to get to compare the two different office environments. So once I hit the university sector, I thought if, I've, if I'm going to do office work, probably for the rest of my working life, I want to do it on campus. I want to do it where there's libraries, there's art galleries, there's markets, there's interesting people, there's books. Yeah, I just said this is like heaven for an office chick. So um, I did 20 years across many different uh, university sector You say early in the book, Christine, that the history of your family held you all back. What did you mean by that? I mean, there was, there was, you were explaining there's sort of no expectation. I mean, the expectation was you were going to leave school and get a job. Uh, Was that from the recent history of your family? I mean, how might things have been different if you'd been brought up in a different, different era? I suppose that was on the back of mum and dad when I write about them. And they came out of uh, the end of the World War Two and the Depression. My old dad was like in the coal mines in Monthaggy at 13. So that was his entree into the working world. It was like this was a, a very different era to what even I came into in the mid-70s where mum was very proud of us being a factory worker herself. When we got office jobs, she was like, you can't complain about anything, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I know you, before you started working at the university, you had some time in Sydney and Brisbane. I mean, this comes out in the book, you had run-ins with, with the heroine. You mm. ended up on an ABC show in 1983 called Faces of Change, talking about women in Australia. How did you end up on that show? Oh, that was interesting. So, yeah, wild Sydney days nearly killed me, but I made it. I lived to tell the tale. So my mate, Mary Callaghan, who's since passed away, beautiful woman, dear friend, and she was a filmmaker and she'd got wind of this ABC program that was being put together by lovely Anne Deverson, who has also passed, but... They put me forward as the young woman. I was 21. Uh, I was working in a public service. I was running an addiction secretly, I thought. Uh, and I think that sometimes office work and addiction is tied together, but that's my excuse. Um, but it was flooding the streets of Sydney at the time, uh, narcotics. It was just, 
Yeah, it was just something everyone did. It was sounds weird now, but um, don't do it, kids. Uh, be the ruination of you. But yeah, Anne Deverson did this amazing um, program with me that aired on the ABC, and I was the young woman. So I, you know, talked about work. I talked about being a young punk and being in a, a punk band at the time. And it's a bit of a, a happy, sad sort of program. But uh, yeah, I, it was the first time I, I watched myself back on the telly and thought, oh, you know, maybe I've got something to say. Next day, I got Centrelink office. And uh, Centrelink officer said to me, oh, I saw you on the telly last night. He said, what you said was profound. What did you say? Oh, all sorts of stuff like um, how hard it is to <laughs> to get housing. Actually, the same stuff I'm still banging on about, Suzanne. Housing, work. It was a bit of a, a line in it that said, you know, it, how difficult it was, especially those early 80s. Uh, I've got Christine Phillip here. Her book is called An Extraordinary Ordinary, well, Girl Friday, An Extraordinary Ordinary Working Life. And she's, I mean, it's kind of, a, I guess, a history of some of the social change of Australia played out in, in the jobs that you had. So, Christine, when you were working in the university sector, I think a lot of people would imagine it's a sort of land of nice pay and entitlements. But you mm. didn't, you know, you were there for a long t- time and you weren't always treated particularly well. Hmm, entitlement. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Look, it's a hierarchy, strictly, especially among the academics. And what I noticed over the years, especially the last 20 years, uh, this very heavy burden of middle management, a whole lot of shift in the HR training programs. They wanted to know how you felt about everything. And I was frightened to tell them. If I told them what I really thought about that job, they'd sack me. So, yeah, I, <laughs> I felt very uncomfortable dealing with this new culture of, oh, you know, it's sort of a new speak, a bit of... You know, everyone's a team player and, um, you know, a mindfulness and that stuff did my head in. I just, I'm old school, I just wanted head down, ass up. That's pretty much how I was trained. So if I did like speak up, honestly, I always got complaints put in against me. Like, and they, that would often escalate up. So then I'd call in a union representative and I'm a big, Strong union um, member and fan, but of course, then you know you'd get branded as the union troublemaker, especially after the era of the liberals bringing in the you know individual contracts, and then work started to peter out to kind of contract fixed term part time. So this furious competition for roles and individual contracts, where you were kind of pitted against each other. I found that very difficult to navigate and in in a way I outgrew those roles and the workforce sort of spat me out in my early 50s. Um, I probably should have progressed to a managerial position but I was never interested in that. So I, I did become a bit belligerent 
in the end. <laughs> I got sick of being the old girl Friday. It's like the yeah. It's interesting. You talk about this time when you've got all the new technology that's mm. coming in and this means that, you know, your professors or your middle managers are actually meant to start doing, you know, they're going mm. to start keeping their own diaries. They're meant to maybe start typing up their own letters. But actually, they, you were saying they took a long time to adapt and that meant that the work that had meant to be removed from you actually kept, kept going to people in your kind of positions. Well, that was my job. They, the academics had a job in doing their academic work. There's no way they were happy standing in photocopier rooms doing, you know, and putting in marks to a, a database. Like, I mean, that was not their idea of what an academic career was. They had a job and it was mine. So all these lower-level admin positions started to rapidly disappear and I ended up going back to, sorry, I went to a university degree course to try and upskill um, to stay in an office job in the university sector because all of a sudden job descriptions say must have a degree. I just went back into the university sector at a higher level, like you know, old girl Friday becomes a personal assistant or an executive assistant. In So you, you had the same skills for the office just with a degree to go with it? That's it. But that's what you needed to do to stay afloat because times were changing. You better believe it because all those universities were pumping out graduates and postgraduates galore who all of a sudden were happy to take on all those low-level admin jobs just to get a foot in the door so they could pay off their hex debt. Yeah. Um, you, you talk about, Christine, needing to keep working to keep yourself afloat financially. How hard was it through all of your working life to, to stay afloat? Were you ever really able to get ahead? The one thing that saved me and why I can be on the dole now and talking to you about writing a book is the 18% compulsory super component. So that's how universities roll. They have that as a goes into your super savings and they contribute. No one liked it at the time because you get less in your hand, but that's what saved me. So incredibly difficult if you haven't got work. All right, the last job I took, <laughs> the worst, um, I took it out of desperation. They were, I was 50 and they were offering me like 38000 a year to run a whole research program. Anyway, whatever. Um, so, you know, I went backwards in my 50s. Uh, last job I got offered through the Centrelink Job Network provider was a $15 an hour part-time contract in a meat retailer. And I said to my case manager, what is that? She said, a butcher shop as a bookkeeper. So that would have been less than a doll. There are actually jobs being offered that are less than the doll. I guess oh, this one was part-time. but Yeah, lots and lots and lots. So... That was my big dilemma. What do I do? Like, without my super savings contributing, you know, and the Centrelink paying my rent, what I figured out, here's a revelation, here's a, here's a tip for the older women workers out there looking to get out. 55 years old, you can go up the Centrelink and once you sign on to a registered not-for-profit, you can volunteer for the doll. So instead of being sent to all these horrendous, demoralising job network workshops where they tell you to dumb yourself down and, you know, put on more makeup, 
you actually can sign on. I did a community radio stint on reception for six years and at the moment I've gone back in time to where I was in 1977 as a volunteer writing articles and a newsletter for Friends of the Earth. So that money that Zendlink pays me and I swap my volunteer hours for, that pays my rent. And otherwise you'd be what your only options were these kind of very low paying demoralizing jobs. Yeah, and throwing yeah. myself on the, you know, food, on the mercy of the church and the food banks. Like it, yeah, I didn't get didn't get that far. Yeah. What were your experiences like over the years with Centrelink? Because you know, you, you talk to a lot of people who would say it's dehumanising. You don't really get an individual who's going to help you. They're just going to offer you a kind of one-size-fits-all solution. What, what was it like for you? Well, the case manager is a big thing when you're in the program to you know continue looking for a job and um, – we attend their workshops as a requirement. I was happy to do that. So I had one young fella say to me, ooh, you could always get a sugar daddy. Uh, and I said, oh, don't you mean a sugar granddaddy? Anyway, <laughs> I was trying to have a bit of a laugh. I did have one good case manager who um, said there was training money available, retraining money available. And he said to me, what would you really like to do? If you could do anything, what would you? I said, I'd like to be a writer. And I'd like to perform comedy. He said, well, I think I can... And he did. Yeah, they swung me some funding to pay for fees for a women's comedy performance course through Melbourne International Comedy Festival and then a, a comedy writing course. So that was like my secret revealed, you know. And he was marvellous. He was just a one-off. So it depends on the case manager. You've got to suck up to Centrelink. That is the, that's the takeaway here because... It won't be long and I'll be on the age pension sucking up to Centrelink. <laughs> so, so what you've got to, you're saying you've got to work that case manager. You've got to really, what, what do you, how do you do it? Schmooze, tell them jokes. I used to go in and tell jokes to the one who got me the comedy writing money. He had a good old laugh. I suppose you see, look, I always go, <laughs> if it's uh, an appointment, you've got to dress down a bit so you don't look like you're rotting it. You've got to um, let them, tell them how you can help them do their job. So it, I almost like became working for Centrelink, which some of us say. <laughs> when you're long-term on the dole, that's what you say for code. So you've got to have an understanding that they're also in crappy office jobs, that they're hanging on to. I read an article yesterday about toilet breaks, how they're, you know, being monitored for taking too long in the toilet, the centrelic workers themselves. So, uh, you know, this is a kind of thing where workers have got to stick together and even the unemployed workers. I feel like going through Centrelink is like a job. You've got to work them and you've got to ask them lots of questions and put your hand up for some of that training money. You've got to pretend to be enthusiastically... (laughs) wanting to get back into the workforce, even though you know there's no jobs there for you. I mean, I'm imagining, Christine, to play devil's advocate here, there'll be some people listening who go, well, you should have just taken the job at the butchers or you should have just done whatever it took. Mm-hmm. What, what do you say to people who have that that, that attitude that well, you've just got to do whatever it takes rather than be unemployed? Yeah, not for less than a doll. I would have lost my health care card. I would have lost my travel concession. I would have been working my guts out 
for less than a doll. Mm. This is a wonderful thing about the volunteer arrangement. So that doll just covers my rent. That's, you know, what rents are like. I mean, housing mm. is such a huge thing. If you don't have secured, if you haven't got rental housing, if you haven't got somewhere to live, you can't go to work, number one. Number two, wait till you get a bit older hmm, and see how long you last. If you're just down, you're doing an average job, the number of people have told me the same story. And the job network manager said that to me. He said, I've got 100 women like yourself on the books. You know, they're not getting back in the workforce. Yeah. And did I've, you see, Christine, after you turned 50 and you were trying to get back in, that it would be that same kind of attitude towards older women? Well, I'd never been that old before, but <laughs> <laughs> I thought because I had a BA honours, I had, you know, 30-something years in office experience, but I'd get interviewed and they'd say, do you know how to use the internet? And I'd be like, I mean, there's an eye roll and I'd be... And then I'd, my attitude failed me. <clears throat> Excuse me. My attitude failed me because I'd been through all that for 30 years. And the workforce had changed so much, I could no longer fit myself in. I want you to tell us too, because you got caught up, Christine, in a, a housing scheme that the Victorian <laughs> government was, was running. It turned out to be a massive disaster, not just for you, but for a number of Victorians. What, what happened? Oh, there was a shocker. Um, they called it the Home Opportunity Loan Scheme. Beware, buyers, beware. So it was a, a low income. People could apply for a housing loan. So that was when I was at a uni job, admin, what would I have been earning? Maybe 40000 maybe. Not even, no, it would have been less than that because it was the 90s. So what it was was a kind of scheme at the end of the, 80s global economic meltdown and the banks were lending like mental. They, the interest rates were 18%. I had my money in pyramid saving for this loan scheme I heard about that you had to have like 10% saved. So I had it in pyramid. Oh, we know how that went. Yeah. I walked in to get the deposit out because my name had come up to borrow like, I don't know, 80,000 for a loan. I thought it was all crazy. I thought the whole time I was going to fall over. I'm not going to go through with this. But they offered me the money. Pyramid, I got my money out, but people were standing in the bank saying, I want my money now. I heard this is going to fall over. Well, it all did, as we know. Um, and then I thought, oh, good, I got me 8,000. <laughs> I'll go and buy this house in West Heidelberg. I had, I had a month. To buy a house worth ninety thousand, those were the days, um, and that was it. That was the end. that was it. once. If I hadn't done it by then, I, I, the offer was off. I wish the offer had been off. So ends up, I buy this dump in the old Olympic Village uh, housing area of West Heidelberg. Oh my. Goodness, that was difficult. I stayed there seven years. I paid 70000 never missed a payment, and the mortgage went up because of the interest rates. So those were the sort of computer days were really going off. Then you could do all sorts of like mortgage analyzers. And so I did that one day, and I found out I'd be paying 350000 over 35 years for this dump. So 
I went to the housing office, Ministry of Housing and the banks ran this scheme. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, I handed the keys back. I said, I can't keep it and I can't sell it and I can't pay it off. So you deal with it. So they sold it to an academic from the university where I worked and I think he bulldozed it and put three units on it, as you do. Uh, uh, they they did inquiries into that later, though, didn't they, Christine? Like it turned yes. out that they they said we never should have lent the money to the vast majority of people we lent it to in this scheme. Dear Mary Della Hunty, who ended up being in the government, and uh, I wrote a letter saying I want you to bear witness to what we went through, and many others, of course, thirty thousand Victorians got caught in this, and some horrendous. Uh, cost uh, for people. Um, I mean, I became homeless and had to move in with my mum in the retirement village. That was uh, that was good compared to many. And she pushed with the community legal centres to have us be able to um, get out without having ruined our credit. I think I did ruin my credit. They never sent me the records. But what the really good uh, end to this story is. I ended up out of the house, living with my mum, and then I ended up, they sent me a letter saying I still owed them $13,000 and that if I um, was on a uh, like a benefit or an allowance with the government, they could waive it, fair call. But I was working full-time at the uni. So this little debt collector would come around every year and say, can check my assets? Uh, nothing. And then fill in the boxes. So I found out through a community legal centre, wonderful advice who's passed Jan Pentland since, but she they got together and they they told me that they figured out, they suggested to me, look, you know, what about a getting, like doing a degree and, and, and getting on a student allowance? That would allow you to waive the debt. So I thought, I'm sitting there typing up essays for money in between work and full time, trying to pay up everything. And um, I thought, you know, I could possibly study at a uni. I mean, I've been working in them for years. So I applied and I got a student allowance and then they wrote off the debt. So that's how I ended up with a BA Honours in Cinema and Media Studies. <laughs> oh, Christine, it is quite the story and you're, you're the story of your working life. You know, it really tells the story of the last 45 years as well. Thank you so much for being on Nightlife to share some of that story with us tonight. Oh, cheers. Look, and I just want to say I'd love to see more working women's stories get out into the world like mine and... Last one, equal pay for all women forever. <laughs> here, here. Uh, Christine, thanks. Christine Phillip Jeez. is uh, the author of Girl Friday, uh, An Extraordinary, Ordinary Working Life. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.